apologies for uh, for starting late. Uh, we will go over, if that's okay with the audience, about seven minutes to take your questions. <coughs> so all my pregen of the students too, thank you all for coming. I'd ask everybody to turn your cell phones off, uh, just because I just had to turn mine off. <laughs> uh, and uh, <coughs> we have a pretty timely paper today, especially with what happened uh, in the last 24 hours. Um, so hopefully it'll be it'll be lively, it'll be engaging. And I'd like to uh, introduce uh, the panelists uh, to my immediate right is Dr. Nahro Zahros, the Vice President of Soran University in Iraq. They're based out of Erbil, Erbil province. It's good to have you here. And then uh, Senior Fellow from Hudson, Hilaf Radkin, is the Director for the Center of Islam, Democracy, and the Future of the Muslim World here at Hudson. And it's good to have you on as well. Thanks. Jennifer from the Institute for the Study of War. Uh, she was a panelist here about uh, two weeks ago, and uh, we're glad to have her back. And of course, uh, it's good to have you here. I want to have a, a diverse perspective here on what's happening in Syria, Iraq, vis-a-vis -vis adversaries and allies. And we have Dr. Omar Koff, co-founder and executive director of the Omran Center for Strategic Studies. So I'm going to let uh, our senior fellow, Hilal, he's going to set the scene. It'll take about four minutes to talk about what's going on now. And then uh, I'll take it from there. We'll start with you. Okay, uh, thanks very much, Mike. I also want to uh, thank Mike more generally for the continuity of this kind of event because uh, this is a very dynamic uh, region, uh, was one way to put it, uh, and it's really very helpful to have uh, this, you know, not one-off events as is unfortunately so often the case in Washington where an issue is raised and, and then forgotten. Uh, and I'm glad that you're going to continue to do this. Um, what I want to say is, is as follows, um, I, a quite simple point, but uh, one that it needs to be made, I think, uh, as regards to the United States. And I'll, what I have to say is largely, uh, most immediately be about Syria, but we'll get back to Iraq, I think, uh, in the course of the discussion. It's this. Um, the United States is now a party to the Syrian civil war. Uh, that is uh, uh, a clear party to the Syrian civil war. Clear, at least in terms of the objective reality. Not so clear in terms of what we say about it. This is not entirely surprising because <clears throat> we got to this point in a very unexpected, unintended, and indirect way. Uh, if you look, go back to 2011, uh, President Obama was clear that he wanted us not to get into the Syrian civil war, insisted on it, insisted on it even over the advice of several senior security people at the time. And that's where we would be but for something called the Islamic State. And we have come to be a party in the Syrian civil war because of the Islamic State. Now we were also a party to the Iraqi civil war uh, for the same result. but. And there's a way in which we should talk about ourselves in, as a party to the present Iraqi situation. But I, the, the, the reason I stress the Syrian case is this. In Syria, <clears throat> unlike in Iraq, at least at the present time and even in the past, we are in control of or protectors of a very large part of Syrian territory a very large part, and, and including some very valuable territory from the perspective of Syria. And that makes us a party 
to the war. Now, <clears throat> since we, because of the way in which we started, it was never, the Obama administration never said that that was what we were about and not where we would wind up, but that's where we wound up. In a way, the present administration continues along in, in the same vein. Our officials continue to tirelessly say that we are um, simply in Syria to fight the Islamic State, um, which implies that once that fight is over, we will leave. But um, uh, <clears throat> even they may get, probably are getting a little tired of saying these things because they're, they're not really credible um, in two ways. Uh, one is we now may have other objectives in Syria. And people have suggested what those might be. One is now that we have a serious position in Syria, that we can be a serious player in the negotiations if they should occur for the resolution of the civil war, which we were not in the previous administration. Senator Kerry spent an enormous amount of time on it, but all to little effect, partially because we had no leverage in the situation. The other objective <coughs> also mentioned would be um, to push back, as we put it, uh, Iran and its malevolent designs in Syria, Iraq, and in general in the Middle East. Those are, both of those are possible objectives uh, given the position we now occupy. Um, the question for the United States <clears throat> at this point, and this is why I, I wanted to stress from the outset that we are now a party to the war, is are those or any other things going to become our objectives? And if so, how do we really mean to proceed? Um, there's, a, there's another reason why we haven't kind of faced this or stated it as clearly, it seems to me, because once you state it, then you uh, more or less also have to answer the question, what you're going to do with the other parties to the civil war, namely Syria, Iran, Russia, and now Turkey. Now, the, <clears throat> and we've already seen what that could possibly mean in the case of Syria, Iran, and Russia, because their forces have tried to attack territory controlled by us and defended by us. We defended ourselves twice now, I think, or maybe three times uh, in the south, southeast and then in the east and, and <clears throat> near Deir ez-Zor. Um, we're capable of doing that, but we also, then the question is what, what follows from that? Um, the most immediate uh, but the, there's this other issue now that's, that has come into play, and I expect we will talk a bit about this, because uh, <clears throat> we now have another adversary in Syria known as Turkey, which is also known as an ally. Um, <clears throat> and it's, uh, it's becoming, I mean, uh, most recently, uh, President Erdogan has, has said that <clears throat> Having taken control of the Kurdish area known as Afrin, he means to move east to areas that are controlled by us. <clears throat> and if we don't yield to him, um, he has said he would fire on American troops if that were if, if we didn't. Um, hell of an ally. Uh, but it is something we have to, to deal with. And I think in general, and this is where I'll end. <clears throat> The immediate crisis in Syria vis-a-vis -vis us and the Turks, I think, needs to lead and will lead to a much larger discussion about where, <clears throat> where our, our alliance, if it still exists with the Turks, uh, 
uh, goes in the future. Right. And that's a subject I'd like to return back to because there's already a discussion about this in town, and I think we should pursue it. Right. So, so the panel's titled, The U.S. and Opposed ISIS-Iraq, and so <coughs> realigning allies and constraining adversaries, and what happens when an ally becomes an adversary or acts adversarial in the case of Turkey. So I want to now pass it to Jennifer. Oh, she, we'll right, right. There seems to be a common theme that, you know, you thank the Kurds in Iraq and Syria for helping us take back territory from ISIS, and then you abandon the Kurds in Iraq and Syria after you declared <coughs> victory against ISIS only to have that territory lo be lost again to something else. But uh, Jennifer, can you, can you uh, tell us what's been going on in the last uh, two weeks, uh, especially in the last 72 hours? Absolutely. Um, thanks for having me back here. It, it, it's a pleasure to be here. So I think we're in the phase, we're in the post-ISIS phase of the Syrian civil war, but we're also in the post-ISIS phase of the security situation in Iraq. Uh, what the United States is confronting with respect to Turkey, but a number of other actors to include the Syrian regime, the Iranians, the Russians, is that the unity that the United States was able to generate in the counter-ISIS fight has completely broken down um, regarding any, any question, security or political, um, regarding what should come next and what should replace ISIS. Uh, the biggest immediate challenge the United States faces is, of course, Turkey's war against America's local partner, the Syrian Kurdish YPG, which the Turks view, in my view, correctly as linked to the PKK insurgency inside of Turkey. The Turks have already attacked and defeated a YPG force in northwestern Syria, and the Turkish president, Erdogan, has threatened to conduct follow-on operations across northern Syria and into Iraq in order to pursue a larger military defeat of the YPG. The United States has been attempting to de-escalate the situation with the Turks, engaging in a number of technical discussions and other meetings in the hope of halting the Turkish operation at Afrin. What looks likely to occur is actually one or more follow-on Turkish operations, possibly in the area of Sinjar in northwestern Iraq, which is situated near the Syrian-Iraqi border, which Erdogan has already declared. Um, he has begun operations to clear. Um, PKK and YPG-affiliated forces from that area. Turkish forces haven't actually moved on that area, and what we've actually seen is a deployment of the Iraqi security forces to secure that terrain, possibly in an attempt to block any Turkish operation or to disincentivize the Turks from using military force. Um, the U.S. commander of Central Command, General Joseph Votel, was in Baghdad meeting with Prime Minister Abadi over the weekend, and the U.S. may, have, may be brokering um, a deal with the Iraqi security forces in an effort to avoid further escalation. The problem remains, however, that Turkey is committed to further escalation against the YPG. So if we have blocked him in Sinjar, it doesn't necessarily make future escalation more likely. And what the U.S. is actually facing is a mutual escalation from the YPG, which has begun an insurgency campaign against Turkish armed forces in northwestern Syria, conducting already a number of, of IED attacks against Turkish forces uh, one of which actually occurred during a high-level battlefield circulation of Turkish officers in Afrin. So we're actually looking at future escalation that the U.S. may not be able to deter, given the number of different sites that actually Turkey has the opportunity to attack. Well, what's interesting about that, it's uh, once again, there's the repositioning of forces to take on something other than ISIS. Okay. Again, you have the Iraqi security forces moving to these areas, also with Hassan al-Shabi, uh, the IRGC-backed militias. And I wanted to ask a quick question for all the panelists because 
There, there are some arguments. YPG connection to the PKK, what does it really mean? When I make the argument that Kitab Hezbollah or the Hashid al-Shabi or Asab al-Haq or these different groups are related to the IRGC, I can easily make the argument because IRGC lieutenants are in charge of them. There's funds going directly to them. They have weapons going directly to them, and they fall under an IRGC Quds Force command. But when I ask the same question about the YPG and the PKK, I don't get the, the funding, the training, the leadership. I get the political ideology links. But there, there was a recent transfer of PKK weapons to the YPG in Offering. Um, so I see those things, but are those, are those alliances of necessity to defend against something, or is it the same argument I can make with the Hashid al-Shabi being directly linked to the IRGC Quds Force based on leaders, units, uh, ideology, uh, baya, if we want to use that term? Um, so I'd like to ask all the panelists, because I know there's some differing agreements. And um, what you said about um, what Turkey is, is doing and the, re the reallocation of forces from the Iraqi security forces in Iraq, away from the ISIS fight, and then the SDF leaving Raqqa and Deir Azur to go west of the Euphrates to help their brothers across, brothers and sisters across the Euphrates. So in that, I, I, I know you want to say something about that, but I, I'd like to just, you know, I don't want to have the argument of whether or not YPG and PK, but I, want, I do want you to talk about the similarities so we can break that down because you have General Mattis, uh, Secretary Tillerson, he's still there, saying that the YPG is an ally in Syria yet can be an enemy across the border and they're supposed to limit all their operations here. We understand why Turkey is concerned about them and Secretary Tillerson went as far as saying when you hit the YPG in Austin, <coughs> try to be precise so you don't kill civilians. And that's just a really difficult message to translate on the ground where you're, when you're a U.S. <laughs> advisor <laughs> embedded with the, the SDF forces. So sorry to take so long, but um, did you want to make a comment? And then I'll throw it back to you and then throw yeah, it to you. I think it's correct to say that YPG is linked to the PKK, but there was a time where we could separate the two. And we were going towards that direction, but I think the... Uh, the failure in understanding the reality there, the failure in understanding the complexity of the Kurdish situation in Syria has led to uh, the idea for the YPG to return to PKK. But at some point, they were, when they were aligned with the US, when they were, aligned, uh, they were allies of the um, KRG in Iraqi Kurdistan, they were really shifting away from the, the, the leadership of uh, of of Kandil Mountain or the PKK, but we lost that. So they had no hope but to go back to the PKK. But the problem is here, YPG is not attacking Turkey. So there's right. never a, a big danger for Turkey, for, Tur for Turkey to go into Syria to, um, in the pre with, with, with the pretext that it's securing its border because it wasn't a danger for the Turkish border. Um, but what we see, the narrative we see in, in, in Turkish media and in, within the Turkish nationalist movement in Turkey is that it's not just about uh, wiping out YPG or the terrorists or the PKK. It's way, way, uh, it's more, much more wider than that. It's going all the way to Iraqi Kurdistan, all the way to the border and killing the hope of any Kurdish or Kurdistan dream in, in the future. So. It, um, 
it may started with the pretext that it's you know Turkey is trying to protect its border from the terroristes, but now it's going uh, beyond that. And yesterday we saw the Iraqi government stationing all this army in Sinjar because uh, it was at a time where President Erdogan at a meeting, at uh, a public meeting with uh, his followers in Trabzon, in Turkey, he said, the operation to attack YPG in Sinjar has started. And on Wednesday, PKK and the Iraqi government or the YPG there, they said they evacuated, they left the city of Sinjar. So uh, Iraq is saying there are no PKKs in Sinjar, no YPGs in, in Sinjar, and yet Turkey's yesterday announced that they, they are going to attack Sinjar and the um, uh, Iraqi Ministry of Defense sent lots of armament and troops to, to be stationed in Sinjar. So there is some fear that Turkey might you know, come to Iraq either from the, from the north, from Soran region of Iraq or from, from Syria. But also, um, we sometimes forget in this context that we have Turkish troops already stationed in northern Iraq. We have Turkish troops in Bashika, we have some uh, places around Erbil, so there are Turkish troops. So I see that you know, this is the beginning of a much, much bigger problem. And the main thing that is going to escalate this war is because of lack of clear vision from the West, mainly from America. In this battle, I see, uh, just returning to the title of the, 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 the talk, I think in this battle, America is losing. Uh, America is losing the grip of the, the, the situation and lack of clarity in the strategic point. It's pushing the America's enemies more, um, uh, you know, achieving what they want to achieve. Iranians are achieving the objecti objectives in Iraq, in Syria, the Turks as well, but I think America and American allies, Kurds and others are losing in this battle. Yeah, and that's to, that's to Jennifer's point. Maybe maybe General Botel is the one that's seen all of this happen and to your point, went to Baghdad to get Baghdad to send regular army forces and not Hashid al-Shabi to Sinjar to be an actual hold force that the U.S. could partner with in order to assure Turkey they don't need to come in. But again, it's the holding the territory that keeps it from destabilizing with the right forces, and we just haven't seen it. This may be the first example of that, actually, where we actually have the right force going to hold territory to prevent escalation. And I want to ask both, both of you, do you think this is part of Erdogan's uh, campaign, much like the Gulenist campaign, where he was able to roll up adversaries under under the, the, the Gulen-sponsored coup to be able to go after political adversaries, to jail journalists, to go after uh, military commanders that were had a pro-West position. And you think he's doing that with his PKK campaign to go after Kurds of all stripes. But again, the Bashika and the Turkish presence in Erbil and Bashika, that's actually to train and enhance the capabilities of KDP Peshmerga mm. in the fight of ISIS. But they may have shifted at this point. But I'll, I'll go to you to, to try to answer that long question and then go back to you and, and then throw it back to you as well. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I, I think it's, it's definitely not in the best interest of any of the actors on the ground that an escalation of violence takes place. Uh, that would be the first point I, I need to settle um, in, on, on, on the floor. But going forward, uh, I think from a Syrian perspective inside Syria, that overlaps with the regional actors. Now we have four 
different armed uh, boots on the ground uh, armies, official armies and bases. Um, perhaps the only one not admitting and denying would be Iran denying its, its presence uh, on the ground. And, and that's because it's been uh, manipulating all the different actors to play to its own benefit by integrating itself within Sunni groups, within Shiites groups, within Christian groups on the ground, within the governance section. And so when, uh, from the Turkish perspective, I'll, I'll go back to, to, to Turkey, um, they perceive the PYD uh, as the same as PKK and that many PKK leadership has gone into Syria and weapons are going back and forth through the borders. And so um, it wanted to push the line, push the envelope um, so that it could present itself as a partner for future stability. I don't believe that Turkey has an interest to go at war against Kurds. Uh, perhaps uh, there are many mistakes uh, on, on that side. I, um, at, at Omran Center, we did a lot of stud field studies on northeast Syria, but also in Afrin before the, the recent operation. And uh, many of the local populations have been uh, troubled by the interference of PYD uh, as a political party and the YPJ as an armed group uh, within the local governance, within the local affairs of the, situa of, of the population. Uh, numerous human rights abuses have taken place, but uh, nevertheless, people want to see something at the end. Uh, many people don't, belong, don't, want, don't, don't support uh, those who don't support the Turkish uh, operation in Syria also don't support the PYD controlling their governance affairs. There is a security chaos going on, I believe, in northeast uh, Syria today, uh, very close to what took place in northern Afrin that the Turks could not tolerate any further. Uh, many of the Syrians have said that maybe if the U.S. has chosen this ally to be uh, uh, the ally for the fighting ISIS, it may not necessarily be the correct ally for the security and stability and reestablishing peace. Um, and, and that's been the demand of the majority of the Syrian people, regardless of which camp they, they stand on. What's interesting about that is uh, there's been a failure to build a, a Sunni Arab force in Iraq to counter a Sunni insurgent group. And there's been the same failure in Syria, an 80% country, to build a Sunni force to hold and clear territory from a Sunni insurgent group or terrorist group. And, and in both cases, we've used proxies. In the case of Iraq, Hashid al-Shabi, Shia militia proxies, and a predominantly heavily border infiltrated Iraqi security forces. And if you hadn't had a chance, any of you Iraq followers had a chance to uh, look at ISW's order of battle report, it's excellent. It goes through each unit to include the Hashid al-Shabi. Jennifer was part of that. I loosely translated that with my iPad pen on my iPad Pro because it's a toy. <laughs> And, and, and plotted all those units on the map. And it, it shows you the Iran land bridge that we're saying doesn't exist. And in that, it just simply shows control of the four major crossing areas by units that have already been co-opted by Badr and also the Hashid al-Shabi. But to your point, we haven't built the right force in Iraq or Syria, and these forces care about issues. The YPG cares about what happens in Afrin, the, the Hashid al-Shabi cares about what happens in Sinjar, Talafur, and all these other places where there's infrastructure, and we're starting to witness that. And in the case of Raqqa and Deir Azur, there's potential security backslide. In the case of Kirkuk and Hawija, there's already security backslide with uh, a reemergence of ISIS. And the worst part of that is when ISIS attacks a directly linked IRGC militia, people actually don't care.
they they don't cheer it necessarily of a specific event uh, a specific event of 27 Assab Ahul Haq militia members being killed south of Kirkuk by ISIS there's almost a consensus that well they shouldn't have been there and that's not the right security force so in that dilemma we have the US trying to take a position but like you said Iran is already winning Turkey Turkey is winning over just really stopping uh, Turkey and at this Russia point as well Russia's winning Russia's, Russia takes a, a dip in the pool of winning and then takes it out right away. Mm -hmm. And it's just kind of trying to assess what they should do. But yes, mm -hmm. uh, I would say Turkey, Iran, and Russia are winning, and the U.S. is struggling to come up with a post-ISIS strategy while still being in an ISIS, counter-ISIS strategy. Because again, ISIS only lost territory. They didn't necessarily, they're not defeated. They're in the Al-Qaeda model. And uh, you I just I would say all of this is true, and I, but I, now I think in whether we're winning or losing, we're, it depends on winning at what. I mean, we, we still don't know what it is we're trying to accomplish um, after defeating the Islamic State, because we didn't know what we were trying to accomplish before that. And uh, <clears throat> but I do want to uh, uh, and. And that's a you know it's a reasonable discussion, but uh, all these other things then impinge you know after that we're just simply reacting. We're reacting to the fact that oh yes we know yes we don't like Iran and we we have every good reason not to like Iran. We should resist it. Resist it. Everyone has been saying that for God, for God knows how long. But what is what is that what does that mean in terms of a real objective? It's in the president's and, and it comes up especially now because. <clears throat> powerfully because we have seen, first of all, that there were, there's been no decline in, in Iranian ambitions since the conclusion of the JCPOA, so that we're now nearly three years be after that. But the flip side of that is we actually have a position from which to do something if that's what we intend to do. We have a position in northeast Syria. We have a p position in southeast Syria. Um, through which the land bridge runs. So the question is, is that, <clears throat> um, is that position genuinely useful to opposing the Iranians? Uh, what, is, what are its costs in, in exercising? What does it mean? I mean, and it, since part of that is our position in northeast Syria, um, <clears throat> necessarily comes into play how we're going to treat the Kurds, because we have taken that territory with the Kurds. We have not... We, we have been a, a major player in it through boots on the ground and through our Air Force, but they're the people who are holding the territory, and we see how much that means once their friends in Afrin are, are attacked. Suddenly, people are, are leaving positions in, in, uh, near Deir Azor, and suddenly that means we have a problem, a new problem with the Islamic State. So these things have to be figured out. I want to say something about Turkey at this point. <coughs> Um, I mean, there's a larger discussion to be had about what it is that President Erdogan wants. Um, uh, if you go by his various statements, I guess the ne next Ottoman caliph, uh, ruler of the M Middle East, and so forth, he is very fulsome in his rhetoric and, uh, and, and so forth. But as far as the Kurdish issue is concerned, and especially Afrin, <clears throat> what he is his only argument... The argument he makes is that he that Turkey was under a terrorist attack from Kurdish regions. The only real argument is it might be under terrorist attack in the future. 
uh, because there were no such uh, tax. There really weren't. Um, <clears throat> and then the issue would be, um, so this action is not in response to anything. It's a preemptive action <clears throat> for which um, the original pretext that he's fighting terrorism is completely bogus, uh, particularly bogus because he didn't fight terrorism in the form of the Islamic State. He was entirely an enabler for a long time of the Islamic State. So those arguments don't count whatsoever. The real question is, <clears throat> for us, and also for him, um, how much, um, uh, how tough we are willing to be with him uh, in order to get him to come to reasonable terms. Because right now his, his terms are entirely, uh, stated terms are in, entirely unreasonable. So U.S. leverage against our, our Turkey NATO ally, <clears throat> I'd like to hear each of you uh, tell, tell, tell the audience uh, what are U.S. levers when it comes to Turkey, what can we do, what should we do, and what will we not be able to do? Uh, what should we do? Right, well, the other thing is, you know, when, when we talk about... <coughs> And U.S. interest, Iraq is a major part. It might be a bigger part. So we have to analyze the situation in Iraq. And right now, while uh, there is chaos, there is lack of leadership in Iraq, the, the Iraqi election is approaching on May 12th, and this is going to be even much, much more problematic and quite frankly, a nightmare for the U.S. Because what we see now, if, if we go to the polls tomorrow, then no political party will win outright. And right. then there will be a coalition to form the government. In order for all these political parties in this political cacophony to get together, it's almost impossible. Whether we are going to see a political vacuum in, in Iraq and areas will be protected by local people or by sectarian groups or by <laughs> Malicious, this is very likely. So if Iraq turned out to be more problematic and more chaos, then there will be a power vacuum there. So Turkey and Iran are the main major players in the region where they could come in and, and hold positions and looking at their interests and their proxies. So um, what we can do now, still America can change the direction of the political establishment, they changed the direction of the countries in Iraq and Syria, particularly in Iraq. Uh, while America is it's, it's abandoning its uh, friends and allies, people who helped America to achieve their objectives, defeating ISIS and, and so forth, and while America is it's not helping the, 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 people, the very people who are trying to bring peace and stability about, like the Kurds, uh, while America is not supporting the, the, the case for Kurdish um, um, rule. What we see now, the Kurdish airports are now controlled by Iraqi government, but also, very importantly, the, Kurd, the, 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 the border uh, crossing in the triangle between Syria, Iraq, and Turkey are controlled by Iraqis. And when we say Iraqis in today's context, we mean militias who are aligned to Iran. So this main borders are, are controlled by Iran. So we are, by not supporting the Kurds, we are losing more uh, leverage. And also, it's becoming a headache and a nightmare 
And if, if we go like that, I think it will be Iraq and Syria will be the same nightmare for America. Right. I, I that makes sense. To, yes, and I, I, you didn't mention a point that uh, you brought up earlier in our discussion. I think it's really very crucial about the elections that it is extremely likely that there will be practically no effective Sunni vote in those elections, yeah, but, which uh, will return us to the situation of 2014 or 2013. While right? you have all Shia militias in Muslim areas, most refugees are not retaining to Mosul, and Sun Sunni votes are coming from Mosul mainly. So no. the Sunnis are trying to uh, delay the, the Iraqi election to September so they could see the refugees going back. But if, this is not going to happen because other Shia blocs are against the idea. The Shia blocs who are against the idea are people who think they are, they are going to win the election, mainly Maliki and also uh, the Hadi al-Amri al-Fatah party, which is the main block of the Shia militia. Um, so, yeah. Which will mean we will get <clears throat> ISIS 2.0, ISIS 3.0, whatever. It will make the, uh, what seems to have been at least an effective uh, action on the part of the United States to defeat the Islamic State, it will be vitiated uh, in, to some degree, I don't know. Lack of this clarity, uh, post-ISIS Iraq was led to this chaos and now Kurds are much, much weaker, which are the main ally on the ground for the United States, and it's, it's going to lead to more chaos and, and, and bloodshed, I'm afraid. And the U.S. position is to hold the elections on May 12th, by yeah, the way. Yeah. You want to say something about Omar? Yes, uh, I, I want to describe the post-ISIS uh, Syria, at least, and perhaps also Iraq, has witnessed a huge <coughs> increase in the power of Iran. Uh, and I think that's where the U.S. policy has, has, has gone um, is that a concern of Turkey? I, well? I think you can see it as a concern because most of the weapons used in Afrin by the YPG were Iranian weapons. Uh, the Euphrates Shield area has cleaned up the... It's, an, it's, it's perhaps the only ISIS <coughs> zone in Syria. The southern front still has a pocket of ISIS. The uh, northeast Syria still has small pockets. The Euphrates Shield has been the most stable. It has 16 local councils elected by the local communities. Uh, the Afrin already has a local council now recently elected. Regardless of its uh, uh, power or strength in terms of its governance, but has established something for, for the move forward. Over 100,000 Syrians have returned to the Euphrates Shield area. Um, I have someone in, in the regions of Afrin also taking pictures of people returning, not to the large numbers yet, uh, but uh, we haven't seen uh, stability brought back to Raqqa, for example. We haven't seen stability. In fact, we have pockets of Iranian influence in Ukumal, in Derizor, and it's always this, there's this, the, the northeast Syria is not a, a stable one from a counterterrorism perspective. It's not a stable area in terms of countering Iran's uh, narrative. Something needs to be done. Uh, I mean, at, at the end of the day, uh, Syrian Kurds are Syrians, and, and they have a right to, to uh, protect whether it's the autonomy or a decentralized uh, form of government, um, whether political or administrative. That's something to be, to be negotiated among the local populations. But I think one of the things that could be brought forward is an opportunity for the U.S. and Turkey to work together is to establish some form of governance uh, structure. Uh, a decentralized governance structure. Now, obviously, that leaves the big elephant in the room, which is Assad, but uh, at least those areas that are controlled by the NATO allies 
would be uh, enforced in a security architecture uh, that allows uh, Kurds to control their zones without a certain political party to, to dominate. I mean, you look at the local elections, if any, in the northeast Syria in se last September, where 40% of the seats are reserved for the uh, political party of the PYD, the TEP uh, local democratic movement. Um, and then the other 60% have to be cleared by their security agencies. So this is very similar to the Ba'ath Party Assad uh, elections. Uh, I'm not saying the elections in the Euphrates Shield are perfect either, but nevertheless, there is no dominating political party that enforces uh, who wins and who doesn't. Uh, local police um, in areas should be chosen by the local councils, and so they need to be coherent with the local community. One of the last opportunities has been the, the referendum in, in North uh, Iraq. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, the impact of it on Syria is that the, the trained Peshmerga Syrian Kurds that were trained by the U.S. in, uh, in the KRG have not been put to force in perhaps the Afrin operation. I mean, uh, certainly the people of Afrin would prefer to have Kurdish forces uh, uh, come to their region rather than free Syrian army that have a lot of vengeance and revenge feelings against uh, the region because of many wars between them. Uh, in the past, but uh, this was a lost opportunity, and I think there's still a chance to uh, mitigate this this realignment within northeast Syria without selling out the Kurds for sure. Uh, but perhaps a realignment with, you know, the PYD needs to declare um, it's it's this keep distance to to draw the line, but with uh, PKK, and all foreign forces need to be pushed out in the same way that we want all foreign forces, of, if any, in the Free Syrian Army to vacate, to leave, to, to create a safe passage for them to leave. Uh, the foreign fighters in northeast Syria certainly need to also find a way to go back to their homes if security is established, if the threat of ISIS has been, for the most part, removed with a few pockets remaining. In order to strengthen this area, the Iranian po pockets need to be removed, and the Iranian pockets come perhaps for the most part through the PKK channels. I'm not saying PKK has a direct channel to Iran, but it certainly has links. Um, and the links have been, have, have been seen. And I think Iran has the most to lose in this realignment. I mean, Iran has, has, has pushed so much in Afrin uh, against Turkey. And, and you see how many trips the foreign minister made to Iran uh, from Turkey. And, and there seems to be something that is unspoken. That's something for the U.S. to invest and, and perhaps widen that, uh, that disagreement. Were you suggesting that Iraqi, American-trained Peshmerga could have been transferred to Afrin to defend Afrin? No, there the were Syrian Peshmergas that are now within the refugee camps in the KRG region. Syrian Kurds, okay. uh, uh, Turkey, Turkey trained, Turkey and U.S. trained, basically, uh, right. uh, Syrian and KDB, Peshmergas. Yeah, and then KDB Peshmerga went and helped with Kobani and other places as well. Right. Sure. I would just add that I, I, I do agree that the U.S. will fail to reclaim Turkey effectively um, from a current alignment with the Russo-Iranian coalition um, until, or until or unless the U.S. resets the terms of this negotiation. Um, the United States has been involved in both, I would argue, Iraq and Syria, has been involved, involved enough to be accountable, but not enough actually to dictate terms. 
either to allies like Turkey, but even to our local partner, the YPG. We've attempted to prevent them actually from deploying reinforcements west of the Euphrates to fight the Turks. We couldn't do that. We're going to fail to preclude the YPG from escalating in a variety of possible ways to include actually that they will decide to start conducting operations inside of Turkey. Um, we've seen them claim one operation inside of Turkey on social media, um, a post they subsequently took down, um, but they, they put it out there. And so the United States is not actually acting like a power broker inside of Syria. Mm. So nobody is responding to the United States as if we are a power broker inside of Syria. And until or unless that changes, we're not, I don't think, going to be able to reclaim the Turks. And we're not going to be able to exploit very important common areas of interest with Turkey, which include countering the Assad regime, which include constraining Iran and reducing Iran's buildup inside of Syria, which should include developing a post-ISIS form of governance that can bridge between local populations that the Turks support, including Free Syrian Army constituencies in northwestern Syria, and local populations in areas that the US has reclaimed. These are all opportunities for the US to assert leadership. The United States' unwillingness to be involved in Syria in the first place, however, has precluded the United States from, from actually exploiting any of these opportunities and has therefore cons constrained the U.S. and forced us to just respond tactically to every latest series of escalations. Right. And what's interesting, I'll get right to you. What's interesting about that is General Votel was testifying uh, in front of uh, Congress and Senator Lindsey Graham pressed him. So what are we doing in Syria? What about Iran? Are we doing anything to counter Iran? They kept pushing them, and General Botel said, my mission in Syria is to defeat ISIS. Right. And it goes against the, the national security strategy that the White House put out. It goes against what we talk about. We say it's not defeats. Defeat ISIS and curb Iranian influence, and wow, look how far Iran has actually been, how much they've been able to achieve in Syria with the, the rockets and the missiles and the, and the Hezbollah presence in southern Syria as Israel faces two fronts. So there's a lot going on, but I think that kind of defines it when General Votel said that our mission isn't to do anything in Syria other than to defeat ISIS, and we all agree that needs to change. Yes, uh, yeah, brings to mind, uh, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, I, I was just gonna say, it stems from our unwillingness to go into Syria in the first place, way back, when we could have, uh, after all, have created a Sunni Arab force that was a substantial force, and then when we finally decided to do a little bit, we did nonsense, pure nonsense. Um, uh, but it, it hasn't, <laughs> the way it worked out, whatever President Obama thought at the beginning, it worked out that we are there, and in a big way. So there is, and I agree with you, it's, this is incoherent. We, we don't have a policy. We don't have, um, we, don't have a, we don't know what we want to accomplish. I mean, in general, we would like Iraq to be nice and Syria to be nice and Turkey to be nice, but none of that is going to actually happen unless we have a clear vision of what endpoint we could reasonably seek and what the means are to it, and that's what we need to do at present. And I do think... <clears throat> we have to consider other things. Any future action on our part, and this is one way in which the Syria-Iraq thing are always tied together, uh, has to do with the fact that there are Kurds in Iraq and Kurds in Syria, as well as Kurds in Iran and Kurds in Turkey. And if we mean to do something in the future in the Middle East, perhaps we're, we will continue our withdrawal from it. But if we mean to do something, that depends on trust and 
faith in our ourselves and our actions and so forth. And that was already at a low point at the beginning of this administration, and it, it goes to lower if people see that uh, when it's convenient, we uh, make an alliance with Kurds to help us with the Islamic State, and when it's not convenient, we abandon them. Or similarly with other uh, allies, if, they, if the Sunnis in Iraq see that, well, it was, uh, you know, it was convenient for us to be in Iraq when we were fighting the Islamic State, but now it's not, and we're abandoning them to the Shiites again. All of those things that have, right. are there, so. We have a thank you and Masalama strategy, which isn't working. <laughs> All right. Yeah, I think <laughs> one more thing we haven't mentioned is that this demographic change that it's taking place in Syria. <clears throat> so this uh, attack on Afrin, maybe it's uh, in a longer term, it's to do with demographic change because the North Shield, it, it, there is also this idea of demo, demographic change. But also the Assad I mean, regime. That people would be yeah, uh, population replaced. Yeah, uh, because of all the refugees from, from, from Turkey right. to return back. But also demographic change, it's not only taking place by the outside forces, but also by inside forces. Look at uh, Syria, how many um, um, people have been issued citizenship who are not Syrians. They are brought by Iranians uh, fighting in, in, in Syria and also yeah. by Hezbollah in Lebanon, fighting in Syria uh, on behalf of Assad regime, and they are getting citizenships, Syrian citizenships. So maybe this is also going to, uh, you know, Afrin in the long term will be a demo big demographic change in the in, in so the It'll region. be a model for, for uh, ethnic cleansing and so forth. It, it, it looks that way. It, 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 it's a reshaping in terms of not only politi political ideology, but also population and, and ethnicities. And that's something you and I talked about uh, a couple of days ago. We, we talked about this is a strategy, basically. This is a template for changing the demographics in the, in the place and then having elections afterwards mm -hmm. where it actually favors you. And who is that gentleman that we should, we should all know that's buying up all the property in, uh, in southern Syria? Oh, we you. should put on, everybody should remember this name because he's going to be. Sam, Sam Herfoz. Yes. I'm sorry. Is he Syrian? Yes. Okay. He's one of the covers for the recent uh, huge purchases of land in uh, Damascus and in many areas in Syria, actually. By Iran? Um, allegedly or supposedly, I assume by Iran, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. If we can say YPG, PKK, we can say this guy and IRGC <laughs> pretty, pretty easily. Yeah. What's his name again? again? Samer Foz. Oh, Samer Foz. Samer Foz. OFAC, U.S. Treasury. Roger, got it. <laughs> Somebody Google that. <laughs> so anyway, we're talking about these demographic shifts. We're talking about all the things that are taking place. And um, some of that's happening in Kirkuk yeah. as well. It's happening in Kirkuk, yeah. Um, well, uh, the, the process with demographic change, it started with the Ba'ath Party in, in 1980s. And, and until now, it's, it's taking place uh, with all this Hajjashabi coming there and buying properties and... There are several names in Kirkuk again, so it, it, it seems like you said it's a template. You know, it's in, in, in Syria uh, uh, and, and Iraq. Yeah, you see the demographic shift in Baghdad uh, after we came in. All the Shias, yeah. yeah. It's what happens. The other point is, you know, like, you know, so, so many times we hear a lot in the media and also on, on, on public gatherings that U.S. weapons ended up used by the PKK because effectively when they went to the, the YPG, then they were used by PKK. But look at Iraq 
for example. All this money that the U.S. spent to rebuild the Iraqi, uh, the Iraqi forces and Iraqi army, which was destroyed in the matter of 24 hours when ISIS came in, we lost billions of dollars rebuilding the army and all the armament and, and, and machines. And also, in, during the fight against ISIS, we, America gave all these weapons to the Iraqi army ended up in, being used by the Hajj al-Shabi. Right, they have, they have tanks. And then now we see the same machines, are, we have evidence that same guns and machines are used by the Quds forces and some people in, 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 in uh, Iran and also in, in Syria. So it's not something, what we see with the Yepaga and how they use the American weapons, it's not something just confined to them. It's also with other, other forces. So that just it goes back to the idea that there is lack of clarity in our objectives from the Western po point of view when it comes to tackling Iran or rebuilding Iraq, uh, tackling Iran and rebuilding Iraq and Syria. There is lack of clarity, lack of objectives in, in, in this matter. The most interesting thing I'll say about that is the access to U.S. money and U.S. equipment is we had evidence that Assad al-Haq was being able to use M1 Abrams tanks. These weren't captured tanks on the battlefield. These were tanks not requested from the MOD, uh, not asked for, but said, we need two tanks. And they basically allocated Opcon to the RGC Quds Force militias under the Hashid al-Shabi. Now, in the last month, Prime Minister Abadi has actually brought in Kitab Hezbollah, Sub Ahul Haq, Harakat Nujeba. Uh, all these different militias, Badr is already there into the official Iraqi military, which means now you actually have these units that have access to U.S. training equip funds, and it's a violation of the Leahy law. It's something we're looking at, and what we did when we saw human rights abuses from Shia militias back during the surge is we had a thing called blue training. We were able to take a unit out of the field, put it into an American base, bring in the human rights, uh, you know, lawyers, people talk about the rules of engagement, <coughs> uh, basically clear out bad apples. But you can do that when you have 160,000 people on the ground. You can't do that when you have 2,000 people on the ground in Syria what, and 5,000 uh, in Iraq. I don't quite understand this, though. Uh, if, if uh, yes, every, it's, everyone likes American tanks. Um, right, all right. So we make very good ones. Um, if the Hasht is now officially in the Iraqi army, which it is, which is happening, which in a way we also even asked for, uh, that we wanted them brought under the control of, this, of the government, um, in what way is it illegitimate for them to have uh, be operating our equipment? They're part of the Iraqi army. for example, if you look I mean, it's a ridiculous thing, but it's yeah. not... Qais uh, Khazali, the leader of the Hassab al-Haq, uh, if you look at his tweets every day, he, you know, he has tons of tweets threatening American soldiers with American weapons that he possesses now. Yeah, and I think part of the problem is that we are now viewing it as legitimate yes. for Iran to use Iraqi forces with Iraqi government resources to deploy, for example, into Syria yes. and attack U.S. forces. Right. That's the reality that we've created by having no strategic vision, actually, for what comes after ISIS and for being unwilling to put any constraints on Iran's ability to penetrate Iraqi institutions while we focused on that tactical fight. Uh, we're also losing the strategic comms game because our strategic communication strategy is to say none of that is happening. Right. And there's evidence on the ground that it's happening. It just needs to change. It's uh, the one Iraq strategy, you know, 
set aside the Kurdish independence or Kurdish referendum, the attack on the Karaji uh, territory was going to happen anyway. And the referendum was used as an excuse to do it. Yeah. It was going to happen anyway. Uh, I've been to Iraq numerous times as a civilian in my research capacity here, and you would always hear uh, Hashim al-Shabi say, Badal Dash Intum, after ISIS, you guys. And this was before the referendum. This is before the Kurds were even gonna, thinking about doing a referendum because they were gauging the U.S. response. But this, this should, just shouldn't happen. Um, there's a thing called DDR, Demobilize, Disarm, and Integrate. And this is not that, but it's being touted as, a, as that, Jennifer, as you know, bringing them into the Iraqi security forces and saying they now fall under the control of the prime minister when Hadi Al-Amri and Mohandas will say, we don't listen to the prime minister, and we will actually well, They may control the, the government after is. the next election. So what yeah, that... It's, I mean, it's very true, because if you look at the history of Iraq, it's always been milita military coups, and the biggest force in Iraq now are Hajj al-Shabi. Without right. Hajj al-Shabi, there is no Iraq. With Hajj al-Shabi, that means Iran is in control of Iraq. And it's, it's a possibility. But also, in the Iraqi election, what we see in the Iraqi parliament, we see people like Qais Ghazali, like Mohandas, like Hadi Amri, inside the biggest Iraqi institution. And imagine what, what's, what will happen after that. I can predict nothing but chaos and more bloodshed. During the surge, the, the strategy of Baghdad, and I'll just say this real quick, was to prevent a Sunni return to power, so they're focused on Ba'athists. And then after al-Qaeda was decimated, Dawah party started being concerned about Jaysh al-Mahdi, started to be concerned about Barakor, and started mm -hmm. using Kitab Hezbollah and Asaba al-Haq to marginalize them. Uh, Badr seems to have won that fight with Maliki stepping down. Hadi al-Amri has seemed to have won that fight mm -hmm. and has now co-opted Qais Ghazali, Mohandas, uh, maybe not co-opted, Soleimani has said all three of you will work together. Yeah. This is the goal. So the irony is that the, the regime protection forces, we could actually build a national military absent sectarian ties to any political parties if the threat was a sectarian threat from Iran. Mm. And that narrative is just hasn't been tried. Uh, anyway, uh, back to Syria. Yeah, can I, I wanted to ask uh, our Syrian colleague, uh, you were suggesting that the most plausible policy to pursue in Syria is a decentralization policy yeah. at, the, at the moment. And that would be, um, well, that would put us obviously directly in conflict with, with Assad and, and uh, Iran and putatively Russia. So how, how do you see this? This would involve, a, this is where you see the potential co cooperation between us and Turkey. Is that it? Well, I, I, I don't necessarily uh, see Russia objecting to decentralization. They might not either, um, yes. Yeah. And so I at least if the three of the main <coughs> armies present on the ground have something in common, even though it's not uh, complete, and, and of course I would put the Russians as, as being not a very stable ally in this, of course, but uh, nevertheless I think Iran would be then the only one that's to lose. At least that could be mitigated through other means. But what's what's happening today is that we have multiple governance structures, multiple security apparatuses being built. And just like uh, Michael mentioned, the, the issue of, of perhaps building a, really a professional army, uh, whether, you know, it's not, it does not need to be called an army, but it could be with a, with a structured uh, fashion. Meaning all Syrian army? It's not or? sectarian based, oh. meaning it's not SDF and it's not FSA, 
So it's something that's, that's, that, that combines both and, and takes into consideration the local populations and, and it's, it's structured in a, in a professional type. Like, a, you know, the Russians proposed a, a fifth corps. Uh, it was a, it's still a failure in, in that sense, but why can't this be done in northeast Syria and northwest Syria? Um, on the security, but also on the governance, I think there is already a de facto decentralization today. There is a de facto decentralization sure, yeah. in northeast Syria, in northwest, and in the south also. And so I, I think there, there is an opportunity to have these uh, uh, governed perhaps on, on militarily under a, a, a new structured army, so you can call it an SDF 2.0, Syrian Democratic Forces, or an FSA 2.0 or so, um, uh, where, where it bypasses these, these issues of sectarian lines. Um, in parallel to that, you need, a, a, you know, talking about DDR, uh, you know, Jordan has done that in, in forming security forces, local security forces in, in some of the areas in, in the southern front. Turkey has done that, and, and also the U.S. has done that to some extent in northeast Syria. So those are security apparatuses that has taken a lot of the fighters to become more civilian-type uh, security, or local police even. Uh, so that's one of the forms of, of DDR that could start from now and not wait till the end of the resolution of the conflict. And then the third would be the actual administration. Today you have a totally incoherent type of administration on the Northeast, the education sector. You know, we've done numerous field studies on the education sector where many Kurdish residents are either sending their kids to regime areas or maybe fleeing out of the region. The number of Kurds, for example, that flew out of the northeast Syria, uh, even after the you know liberation of of of, uh, of the the exit of ISIS, uh, about a third of Syrian refugees to Germany are Kurds from northeast Syria. Why? I mean, some of them have flew out because of ISIS, but I know thousands of people that we've surveyed that said, you know, there is no stability. There's no. I I have a staff member whose 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 daughter was kidnapped and and was 16 in, and and is now serving within those. Uh, um, uh, armed groups, the women protection uh, services. So there are numerous issues that local populations, Kurds, Christian, Arab uh, of all sorts, and especially you know when you talk about demographic change, uh, talk about demographic change also in northeast Syria, uh, not only in 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 uh, Damascus suburbs or in in other areas in in whether it's in Afrin or others. Northeast Syria has witnessed a, a huge population shift. Of, of people going you know, out to Turkey, to Europe, to other countries, or people going to other regime-held areas. I think the U.S., if I may, is in denial about this. The reality that the areas that we've recaptured from ISIS are not well-governed. To the extent that there is governing services or a governance structure, it is repressive and excludes political competition from other Kurdish parties, for example, like the ones that the Turks back. But that, in general, actually, what the U.S. is de facto building or allowing to be built in these areas we've recaptured could actually ultimately lead to a return of the Ba'ath Party, which we've already started to see on lower levels in places like Manbij. And so the U.S. is just in complete denial about the fact that our presence in this terrain somehow serves inherently a counter-Assad or counter-Iranian function. There's nothing inherent about that, actually. And if the U.S. continues to refuse to gain control of the situation, that may actually be where we end up. It's, it's interesting. Uh, the, the president said, uh, well, we hear that the president said, do not give me my own war. And I think that when you, when you ask not to have your own war and you ignore everything that's going on around you, you get it anyway. 
and you President Obama certainly yes did. There's, there's a precedent yeah <laughs> President Obama got his war in Iraq uh, uh, President Trump could have his war in any number any number of places based on based on the current geopolitical tensions um, it has the very great advantage that you can then you know complain that it was forced on me I didn't choose this exactly. that since allegedly since the Iraq war any war of choice right. has become absolutely uh, no, no, that is, from a public point of view, uh, an advantage. But um, I, I would like to go back to... Well, real quick, just to finish my point. Those wars are in the future. Right. This war, we're already, what, six months behind? Eight months behind? <coughs> and, and that's the difference between Iraq and Syria, is we keep ignoring what's going on, and we still get our own war, except we are already six months to a year behind everybody else. Right. In the case that you're talking about, they haven't started yet, and if this template is something that's carried forward, we'll be behind then as well. I wanted to just not let the the suggestion you were making before drop. It it, it sounds like what you would, uh, you know, in a way propose is a negotiation in which the present um, uh, state of play, where everyone is on the ground, well, allowing for some uh, adjustments because we're not going to stop Assad in, in Iskuda, so that's that's a done deal. Or, but even I don't know what you think about Idlib, but that everyone we would get to a sort of stand in place uh, ceasefire, and then the negotiation would be basically about. Um, in a way, blessing that arrangement whereby we have our zone, Turks have their zone, uh, uh, Assad has his own, Russia has its interests. Where Iran fits in this, I'm not sure, but essentially the negotiations would be, um, you know, something like uh, the negotiations among occupying powers after other kinds of wars in which there's a, a you know, multiple occupation and you come to some some settlement. Is that what you think would I, follow from this? I probably wouldn't use the word blessing. Um, yes, blessing uh, it's not. But. <laughs> but, but, but we have a de facto situation that we want to make sure that it <coughs> does not uh, escalate into further uh, insecurity, further breaches of, of, of whether it's ISIS or Iran or other forces. So I'm, I'm saying this is not or the ideal situation, things. but it's already a de facto. Right. And we want to make sure that it... It is consolidated, it is uh, secure, and, and then you could actually negotiate with Assad a certain settlement. Um, the, the, the peace process would have more prospects if you have, in my opinion, and I know this is disagreed upon in the literature, that in post-conflict areas, it, a decentralized system might be a catalyst for uh, a, a political process to go into. Uh, the, many Syrians, I mean, whether it's the uh, I mean, Syria is very localized, and culturally speaking, and so this is not only a, 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 it's not only the Kurds that want some form of an autonomy, uh, regardless of how, you know, the range of that autonomy is defined, but in many regions, people don't want to belong to a central government that used to, uh, you know, control their lives uh, to, to the maximum. I mean, for someone to get married, they need to get a, a permit from Damascus. I mean, this is, this is a very, very intrusive uh, system of government that no one wants to, including people on the regime side. So, you know, one of the prospects today has been to actually communicate with local councils on the regime side that have loose connections, 
still allies with Assad, but have loose connections, meaning they, are, they have more autonomous types. And there are areas, villages and cities and regions in regime areas that are stable, but nevertheless, people are not happy that they don't have this autonomy. So, the, I mean, this, this could actually instigate, this could actually, uh, I mean, people would be, become jealous in those regions of the regime, saying, you know, now that the war is over, um, and, 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 you know, the regime has regained many areas in Syria, uh, nevertheless, these pockets are still within, uh, you know, whether it's Turkish or U.S. Uh, controlled. Uh, people in regime areas would be jealous uh, of that settlement, although not ideal, not a blessed one, but uh, something that could perhaps be developed and be invested in. So as we, uh, we look at the new additions to the administration with uh, Pompeo going to state and Ambassador Bolton going to the National Security Council, the argument we've heard, I think, in here in D.C., the, the D.C. conversation, is that we can't focus on everything. And in that, we've seen security backslide in Iraq. We've seen Syria get out of control as we focus on North Korea, or we focus on, on other issues. Do you think with this change in the administration, uh, whether you're engaging it from the outside or as you see it in Iraq, and of course here in the D.C. conversation, do you think this is on their radar, these changes in Syria? I know it should be, uh, but the argument again is we can't focus on everything. I think they're focused what do you mean, on focus the, on everything. Yeah. Well, what would be the other foci? Yeah. Well, they're focused on the Iran deal and they're focused on North Korea. Mm -hmm. um, the previous NSC was focused on North Korea, and not the Iran deal, and not Iraq, and not Syria, but on North Korea. So, at least that's was the conversation. So, what do you, what do you think? Uh, just two minutes to each panelist, uh, what you think this new administration, or these, 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 this new team that's in, and I think the president has, has a surge strategy. He puts teams together for specific events, mm -hmm. and he, can think, he thinks that they can get the best out of a team for a year. So McMaster was a counter-ISIS, part of the counter-ISIS counter team, and this new team coming in is the counter-JCPOA, counter-Iran, counter-North Korea team. So I'll just ask each panelist to just take two minutes to see what you think these changes mean, what it looks like six months down the road. If, do we have six months down the road? You know, all these things that are happening. And uh, the Iran deal is likely to be canceled as early as mid-April, and if not, after May 12th. And the impacts on what Iran is able to do, uh, the impacts on Russia now that Iran can't afford to buy its expensive equipment anymore, uh, things like that. I mean, just if you can, tie it up for me. Sorry about the long question, but help me out here. Two minutes each. I'm just going to go. Well, interestingly, what we see in Iraq, for example, from Iraqi's perspective, what we read in the newspapers, um, in Kurdish areas of Iraq, people are optimistic that finally there will be people who will say no to Iran. Uh, and Iraqi side, what we see in the newspapers, what people talk about, because it's the main subject of talk now uh, in, in Iraq, these two, uh, these two changes with Pompeo and with John Bolton, is that there is a fear these people are hardliners and they are going to uh, back away from the Iran deal. And also, finally, they will say no to Iran and they will take a steep uh, or, or very directive action against Iraq. That's what we read in the newspapers um, in Iraq. And I think uh, it, it's, to some extent, even here, people believe that this team put together 
because the Iran deal is approaching in uh, April or May, uh, middle of May, then it's likely that America is going to withdraw from the deal. And But how they deal with the Europeans while they're part of the deal with Iran, this is something to be seen. Um, in terms of from the Israeli perspective, they are very optimistic now that Iran will be dealt with. Again, from that perspective, this change in administration is something positive that they've been waiting for. And the drop in, in Iranian currency kind of reflects that optimism yes. on this side of the border, a drop in currency That's on the right. other side yeah. of the border with these changes. And interesting, interestingly, in Iraq, Iranians are now buying lots of American dollars. You know, exchanging the yeah. money there, trying to buy American notes, taking the... Well, when it's 50,000 rials to the dollar, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, from a Syrian perspective, two incidents really hurt the Syrian cause. Uh, one was the deal with Russia on the chemical weapons, and the second has been the nuclear agreement with Iran. Uh, the nuclear agreement provided lots of cash, lots of uh, attention, diverted attention away from all the crimes of Iran, and also empowered Iran to become uh, more powerful. And I think um, any, uh, this would change the, the, the rules of the game, uh, but it, even if that doesn't happen, I think it's important to counter Iran perhaps in the same way that it tries to export all the problems to other countries. Uh, those need to, I mean, there has to be some, some um, uh, tying of those, of those bolts um, on, on the Iranian presence in Syria and Iraq, of course. Right. I think my concluding recommendation is that the United States needs to recognize that Syria and Iraq, increasingly, are actually theaters where great power conflict is most likely, um, if not already unfolding. And the Russians are in a coalition with the Iranians that is pursuing shared objectives in Syria, the wider Middle East, and other places to include Afghanistan. Um, so I think the United States does need to implement a counter-Iran policy. We need to have our eyes wide open about the possibility, actually, that the Russians will use their instruments of power um, to support the Iranians to confront the United States. Um, and I think we need to admit that we have thousands of American servicemen and women at risk in Iraq and Syria right now with no strategy, actually, to trans late their hard-earned gains and their sacrifices into an enduring outcome. That's just not acceptable American leadership. Right. We're, so we need to rectify some, that situation. To some extent, also American soldiers in Turkey in the engine leak base. <laughs> so it's very uncertain now. And Yeah. yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I agree with uh, those comments. And I want to say about the, uh, for, first I think we'll have to see what uh, the leadership of Pompeo and and uh, Bolton is. Uh, I'm pretty sure that most of the negatives, many of the negative things said about them are nonsense. And uh, they're not simply looking for wars to fight. What's really, I think, unfortunate at the moment for a reason that was implied in what Jennifer just said is the degree to which the attention will be focused on the JCPOA. It is as bad a deal or worse than the president says, and other and Bolton and Pompeo say, and other people say, it's just not the most urgent issue. The most urgent issue is what happens to uh, right now in Iraq and Syria, and <clears throat> you know, obviously, if we withdraw from the JCPOA, it will give. He will certainly give the impression that we are going to be much tougher on Iran than we have been. And that overall is a good thing, but whether it's followed by any steps that are really concretely very hard in Iraq and in Syria is another question. And those, that's, where, that's where the battle is presently joined, and that's where we have people in harm's way. So I think that's... Now, you know, all of this may lead eventually 
precisely because we do have people in harm's way, and the only we will face choices which may be tough. Uh, should we increase somehow our investment in the region, or not? If not, then we'll pull out and continue. This will continue a kind of momentum, and then we will finally see that famous pivot to Asia that was right. rooted in the last administration. What's interesting about what you said is uh, there was a test, October 13th. We had a panel here at the Hudson's. <coughs> we stopped it, and the president was carried live here, and he designated the, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps in its entirety as a terrorist organization for support, supporting these destabilizing events in Iraq and Syria through the Quds Force. And yet, 60 hours later, Qasem Soleimani used U.S. equipment, Iranian proxies, and attacked a Kurdish ally, attacked an ally. And there was no response from the United States other than it didn't happen. And no, we didn't see it happen. We didn't see it happen. Even though you showed us pictures of burning tanks, we, we, we didn't see it happen. But a lot of that has changed now. We've now recognized what, what is going on in Iraq vis-a-vis Iran. But again, it's like you said, if we walk away from, from the Iran deal the day after, um, I think we have leverage in Iraq, and, and that's a separate panel. We're going to be doing that panel April 4th or 5th on what happens the day after the JCPOA, uh, what happens the day after the Iraqi elections on May 12th uh, because of the JCPOA, how they're tied together. Okay, I'd like to, again, we started late, 107, and we're going to go to 137. So, <laughs> so if you want to stick around, but I'd like to open it up Army to precision. Questions. Yes, I want to open up to questions. But what I would ask is, you you wait for for one of our one of our Hudson uh, uh, interns to show up. You state your name, you stand up, and uh, try to limit uh, your questions to questions, and we will be able to take as many as we can. All right, we'll start with this gentleman here. I'm uh, Peter Humphrey. I'm an intel analyst and a former diplomat. Um, at some point, congressmen are going to realize, uh, speaking of uh, American weaponry, that uh, there are now dead Kurdish babies, thanks to American planes carrying American bombs, running against American imagery, with two decades of knowledge derived from American signals intelligence coming out of Incirlik and right. Cyprus. Um, at what point do those congressmen start turning off the tap of American technology and at what point does the president call up General Dynamis and say, no more phone calls from Turkey? I'm sorry, but turn off the tap to whom? To the Turks, who are using American equipment and American intelligence okay. to kill our allies. Right, so the way I want to do this, I want to take about four questions and then, and then have the panelists, whoever thinks they can answer it best. Yes, sir? A gentleman in the beard? Yeah. Uh, to you, Lauren, I'll get back here. Of course. Uh, Pat, Pat Spann, just myself, although I was in Baghdad in 04 with the uh, OGA. Okay. But um, anyway, I wonder if you could, if the panel could think strategically for a minute. And, you know, we're coming up on 100 years of the national borders of the areas we're talking about. And it, it seems like it's outlived its usefulness. What do you see as an endgame that, that you actually will see a change in the national borders, you know, within the next, uh, you know, five, ten years or something like that? It just... It just seems like the, um, you know, well, I blame, see, my family was, I have an Irish background, so I blame everything on the English and French anyway, but the, uh, they definitely screwed up in that part of the world. I suggest we only fight wars in Central America where everyone's Catholic and Latino and there's no more sectarian issues. I'll go to Lori here and then I'll come. 
Lori Milroy, Curtis Dan 24. My question was actually a, a version of the previous question, and I'd like to formulate it like this. Maybe we need to stop talking about Iraq and Syria. They are failed entities created 100 years ago for colonial powers, for the interests of colonial powers, and start talking about communities. I mean, it seems that Iran, Syria, even Turkey to some extent recognize this, and they're manipulating populations, as you've said. Underneath these hollowed-out shells of things we call states that don't really exercise authority, so my suggestion, stop thinking in terms of Iraq and Syria and start thinking in terms of communities, and does that make sense to you? Okay, well, one more question, and then we'll go to the second set. With the gentleman right here with his glasses and, and the mustache, Min Shawarab, Saidi. My name is Jabbar Jafar. Uh, from Voices for Iraq. In fact, I have a comment on Mr. Nehru. It's not a question. So can I talk now or? No, no, we'll save it for afterwards. We're going to do questions. Are you going to? You going to... I want to comment on it because he tried to like. Yeah, uh, I don't want to get into a. Right, we, we want to ask questions. To, no, to. the stage isn't for that. Thank you, though. But I'll get back to you afterwards. All right, we had a question right behind with glasses. Um, Sarah Stern, endowment for Middle East Truth. <laughs> Many times Turkey has been referred to as an ally, a NATO ally. ally um, you know that NATO was created in 1949. Um, it was a 20th century organization to defeat the Soviets during the Cold War. Um, our greatest um, threat right now is no longer the Soviet Union, which I think has collapsed. Um, and um, I heard many, many times over the last six months um, constraints from supporting the Kurds because Turkey is a NATO ally. Is it time to re-examine the utility of NATO? Is it time? All right, great. All right, you want to try to answer those four questions? So the first question is, um, should we allow Turkey to use U.S. technology to punish U.S. temporary allies? Uh, that's just the nature of this, this war. The Saudis are doing the same thing. We're doing the same thing. Uh, I'll just take it. You okay if I take that one on real quick? We're using American technology. Everyone's using technology, and a lot of it is American. The biggest problem is it's, it's, it's U.S. policy, at least it has been prior to this accelerated ISIS strategy to take back territory, that the only time you drop U.S. steel on target is if you have U.S. eyes watching it. And we've outsourced our eyes, meaning we are using proxy forces. And these proxy forces are sectarian. And there's less uh, concern about a house that could or could not be ISIS or could or, you know, isn't or is not YPG or, or FSA. So it's, it's not a question of technology. It's a question of rules of engagement. It's a question of, of military strategy. And, and specifically, it's a, a problem with using proxy forces. And we can talk afterwards or, or we can talk after it. So that's how I want to answer that one. I, 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 No, I, I thought it, I clarified in the beginning. We're going to sell U.S. technology to NATO allies, and then they're going to use it in ways that we don't find that they're using it the right way. Example, people are criticizing the KSA. People criticize Turkey. And we've been criticized as well for what we've done. So I, I think, I don't know how you shut that off, but we can talk about this. I think time. the issue is going will have to be resolved in a larger discussion of Turkey, whether, uh, as was implied before, whether by the last question, is Turkey to be considered an ally anymore, right. or at least a reliable ally, meaning by that having common interests with us, common principles with us, 
<coughs> and for that matter, being able to contribute to uh, to uh, uh, the alliance. I mean, um, the, the uh, Turkey has proven to be extremely capable of dropping our uh, our ordinance on Afrin and other places. Whether it's whether its military is really that good anymore is another question. And the problem will, will grow. I don't know how Congress is going to deal with this, but they're already a bit pissed by <coughs> Turkey. There was, there used to be, and probably still is, the Turkish-American caucus in the Congress, but I'll bet it's much smaller now. And for reasons that have to do with things that happen on our own streets, when he brings his, his security guards here, they behave like thugs, and which is terrible. And uh, and also he behaves like a thug with his own population. So all of that, is, and that's not going to change with uh, in Turkey until Erdogan's gone, because that is the nature of the man, and and the nature of his objectives, and the nature of his vision for himself and the country. So all of that's going to be there down the road, and the issue of the ordinance itself, I think, is only part of that. So that's question one and four. Jennifer? Yeah, a, a brief additional comment on NATO, if I may. Um, the, we can debate this, but the purpose <clears throat> of the NATO alliance has evolved since its formation. Um, the, the principle of collective <clears throat> security in NATO actually was invoked to support the war effort in Afghanistan against the Taliban and al-Qaeda. Um, <laughs> NATO is now a member of the Global Anti-ISIS Coalition, which is critical, actually, for helping Europe and the United States and other um, parties within that coalition <clears throat> to coordinate in, in disrupting, for example, ISIS foreign fighter flows into and out of Europe. So the purpose of the NATO alliance has evolved, and we cannot actually separate this issue inside of Syria from the wider um, involvement, actually, of Turkey in NATO operations, which include the current United States-made effort in Afghanistan. And so I think that is part of why these issues are so complex and why it can't simply be a white and black, should we kick Turkey out of NATO even though there's no mechanism for that, or should we punish them for Syria? We actually have to balance all of these competing issues. I'll let you handle this, Sykes-Pico. Yeah, I think, you know, the borders are no longer together. This, this they are seen artificial borders. They were artificial, in my view, right from the beginning, but now more so because we see how the dynamic and the demographic change and the political arenas has changed. Uh, have changed, and Iraq is no longer the same Iraq, and never will be the same Iraq, and neither Syria. These are gone, but whether it's going to be a, a different form of governance, like uh, you suggested locals are in charge of their own areas, and you have weak central governments in Baghdad and Damascus, or whether going to be different entities. But the idea of, you know, bringing back all the speak of agreement and all the borders like they used to be, this is no longer viable. You have to spend billions and billions of dollars and you will achieve nothing. And we have an example. Look at Iraq. From Western point of view, from American point of view, they've spent billions of dollars to rebuild Iraq. To keep it one. To keep it one. And they failed. And it's no longer viable. It's best to look for other uh, solutions now. I, you know, the sykes pico thing is, is interesting. You know, for ever and a day, I'm, I, uh, I'm an Islamic historian, so I'm very old now in this, in this trade. And people who have been complaining about sykes pico enlightened opinion, complained about it when Laurie and I were, for example, graduate students uh, some years ago. And, um, <clears throat> and always it was, you know, Terrible, 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 this terrible, terrible agreement. Now enlightened opinion is, no, we actually absolutely have to have Sykes-Picot. 
All right. right? Because, um, and then it gets into what the alternatives are. And the alternatives, I don't exactly know what Lori means by, uh, Lori Milroy means by, by communities, but it could be not just Shiite Iraq, Sunni Iraq, Kurdish Iraq. It could be, uh, you know. Northern, Western, Central. Uh, all kinds of things. And the problem that always raises for people from the outside is it multiplies, just mathematically multiplies the opportunities for warfare. Because each, each particular community wants something in the other community and may not be friendly with it. And it you know, reproduces the situation, the situation you had <coughs> in Europe for a very long time, especially in the 17th century when there were about I don't know how many, someone, historian here will remind me, or us, how many German states there were and how many different combinations there could like be in, in, a thir uh, in the 30 years war. So that's, that's the objections right off the bat. Um, you'll have, you won't, you, you'll reduce the internal conflict and you'll just export it to the ex outside, that's right. all. You want to say something else? I mean, I, I want to say whether, you know, we want NATO or we don't, <coughs> um, whether we want the borders or not, uh, Turkey has 950 kilometers, Turkey has boots on the ground, Iran has boots on the ground, and Russia and the U.S. And so whether you want to call it, pick the lesser of two evils, or whether you want to call it something else, <coughs> um, depending on, on how you describe Turkey, but at the end of the day, either you pick Iran as an ally or you pick Turkey as an ally in terms if, that's if, you want stability and security in Syria. Now, if we don't want stability and security in Syria, we don't want to safeguard this area from ISIS infiltrations or from further refugee uh, influxes outside, uh, or we want to empower Assad again and so forth. But at the end of the day, there are troops on the ground, and the competing uh, regional powers, I would say, uh, I mean, unless if you want to bring Gulf countries in, in the picture, right now they're not. Um, but today we have four regular armies on the ground. And so uh, from a security, pure security perspective, regardless if you want to call this, as, as we've called it, uh, a transactional type, meaning it doesn't have to be a, 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 a comprehensive type of an alliance, uh, whether NATO or non-NATO, but at the end you need a transaction to, to stabilize this region. Time for two more questions. Uh, this gentleman here, and then we'll go to this gentleman over here. Herb Rose, um, considering two events that are taking place in May, uh, one the election in Iraq and the other the certification of the JCPOA, there's also a third event taking place in May, and that is uh, discussions between Kim Jong-un and uh, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, considering that uh, Kim Jong-un uh, on has uh, uh, taken certain position that why would he be expected to change his position at all in consideration of the JCPOA right. being certified? And uh, would that influence this administration's consideration of certification or not certifying JCPOA? Can I answer that one? <laughs> Absolutely. So, Go ahead. Been, I've been in on these uh, what happens the day after conversations. So, Kim Jong-un stepped up all of his, his uh, missile launches during the last year of the Obama administration, in my opinion, uh, in order to get a JCPOA-like deal. One heavily laden with incentives, weak enforcement, allows you to maintain your nuclear program, 
and has an IEEA that's hesitant to actually inspect sites where we think negative activities are happening. I think the day you walk away from the JCPOA, you knock Kim Jong-un back on his heels because now he knows he's not going to get a favorable deal like Iran got and like the one his father got under the Clinton administration that allowed him to become a nuclear power today that we actually have leverage. And also the bilateral talk leverage, we have that as well because now we don't have to get our European allies like we did with the P5 plus one to agree to terms to make concessions to them so that Iran again gets a favorable JCPOA. Bilateral talks mean Russia and China can't weigh in on the other side. They can, they can weigh in based on what we can do through our economic levers. But I think the day after is the day we actually gain leverage with both Iran, North Korea, Baghdad, and Damascus, if we do it right. It sounds like May is a month when you might want to take a vacation someplace without internet. Unless it's, unless it's uh, so the last time I took one of those direct questions where, hey, can I go after one of your panelists? I was sitting next to Sebastian Gorka, and I don't want to experience that again. So, <laughs> so please, go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, my name is Timur Eldadiri. I work with the uh, Netherlands Embassy. Um, I had a question, um, which... Um, which embassy? Netherlands. Netherlands. Okay, Netherlands. Uh, I was wondering about, um, th there have been some, some uh, positive uh, signs in Iraq of some kind of emerging uh, Iraqi nationalism, uh, uh, particularly also among the Shia uh, population. And I think some members of your panel already uh, alluded to that a little bit, but I would like to know more about it in the context of the upcoming elections. I mean, is this just wishful thinking? Uh, or uh, is this something that could really become a, uh, an important force uh, uh, after, these, uh, after the, uh, the elections? You mind if I give it 30 seconds? We had the Hikma party visit us from Iraq, and they gave us a very positive message. 60% of Iraq's population is under the age of 30. Uh, they are not sectarian. They don't want to join the Shia political parties. They are looking for U.S. engagement, economic engagement, educational engagement, and, and that is promising because this is the Shia population. Again, Iraq is 60% Shia. The Shia youth don't want to go down this road where they're tied to political parties. We're seeing the same thing in Kurdistan. You can talk about that. But I think there, there are positive places. But I think like any election I've seen in Iraq since, since we, we uh, helped get the Constitution in place is everybody tells the youth, tells these Iraqis, hey, we're going to do everything you want us to do after the election. We just need your vote. And uh, the tribal security councils will give their leaders money. Uh, you'll use uh, all these tools to get everybody to vote a certain way. And then much like American politics, after the election, you fail your electorates and you hope to regain them you know, six months before the election. Anyway, I want to handle the Kurdish martyr. Yeah, I think. Um before this election, the previous election and the one before that, uh, if you look at some of the um, nationalistic language or literature that the political parties used, for example, Ayat Alawi is one of the Shias who is very popular among the Sunnis, not among the Shia as such. And he's moderate and he's a you know, outlooking guy, but he got nowhere. In the end, the deal was between the sectarian groups, albeit Kurdish or Shia, you know, if you look at it in this way. So right now, what we see here, in fact, mm. uh, Iraq under Saddam Hussein was more nationalistic than now. Now it's more a country divided along ethnic and sectarian lines. Look at the institutions, they, they're uh, all 
divided among sectarians and, 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 and ethnic lines. Even in Shia areas in south of Iraq, if you look at the schools, the head of schools or universities where, who they are, they have, to be, they have to be aligned to one of the political parties. And this is true, you could translate the same scenario in the middle of Iraq and also north of Iraq. It's a country divided along ethnic sectarian lines and the nationalistic language that we see politicians are using are no longer viable. They are not getting anywhere. I think, uh, uh, you know, the, I, I defer to, to you. I, I would only add that um, two things. One is the, uh, uh, the divisions, you know, this division is comes with arms. I mean, the, the, the people who who have to accept uh, a national view are uh, are are the ones with arms, and they're not inclined to do so. But they're the ones who who, who have the weapons. And second of all, when we met with Hitma, I was very struck by it. You know, it was a very very smooth and persuasive account. Um, and they left behind some very interesting literature. And when you looked at the literature. It featured a lot of photos, all of them with people uh, in extremely traditional dress and garb and not in any way ref reflecting this sort of new, what, what he, in fact, explicitly described as a secular youth wave. Right, right. So all the women were in black abayas, and all, of, it was not, all the men were, um, were, you know, were not sporting, uh, uh, and also they were old. I mean, so it, I, it would seem very unlikely that um, this gentleman uh, was deeply in touch with the, the pulse of the youth. That's what I thought. Jennifer, just one, right, just one thing. Uh, <laughs> talking about pictures, we see uh, for the Iraq election, the campaign for Iraq election, most of the Shia leaders, especially those who are within the P PM PMU, they have their po photos, and behind their photos, there is a photo of Khamenei or Khomeini of Iran. And you've seen that all, you know, you could, you could search on, on Facebook <laughs> or Google it. You see Iraqi politicians, you know, standing in front of either Iranian flag or the photo of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards or, you know, supreme leaders. Sure. All I would say is you can't really have national Iraqi unity without the Sunni population which has been completely devastated, of course, by the rise of ISIS and then the counter-ISIS operation. And I think the U.S. is in, again, a bit of denial about the fact that these populations may no longer view ISIS as legitimate, given the brutality that they endured. But opposition to ISIS does not equal support for the central Iraqi government. Right. Um, so I think we can't actually have true Iraqi unity in any sense until or unless that reconciliation actually happens. The 20 million Sunnis of the northern Middle East are key to stability. Otherwise, 10-year-old Americans will be 20-year-old Americans fighting there in the future. I'd like to be respectful of everybody's time. Thank you all for showing up today, and thank you to my panelists. Great discussion. Thank you.